0: A lot of what I've learned about DAOs is in a reaction to great founder questions. And one of the most important and one of the most frustrating things about building Web3 is Web3 founders don't have a great compass out of the box on how to think about getting counsel. So one of the things I've written at length about is just how do you think about assessing an attorney? Before I even get into like vetting the attorney, what I really emphasize with founders is come up with your crystallized product design. What is it that you want to do? Not the like, hey, I kind of want to do this, but like, give me your thesis in a way that if I were to truly, I could sit down and think critically about what you said and
1: how it relates to the law. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang. And as always, I have my co-host Lee Chang with me.
2: Hey, Will. Good to be on.
1: Today, we have Dane Lund. Dane is a core contributor and DAO architect for the Web3 Accelerator Alliance. After graduating Harvard Law School, Dane became a litigator at Walkie well Far, focused on corporate governance and shareholder rights, looking at the inner workings of boardrooms, and then became an investment banker where he financed private equity transactions before becoming a DAO architect for Alliance. Welcome, Dane.
2: Hey,
0: great to be here. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Lee. Excited to talk about DAO's.
1: So the role you are in today is such a cutting-edge role on the frontier of innovation. It's not something that you normally go to school for. How did you meet Alliance and become their DAO architect?
0: Sure. So after going through uh, a number of institutional roles, I realized I really wanted to take my career to the cutting edge of finance and law. I had kind of experienced both at the institutional level, really wanted to see what was going on at the bleeding edge. And so during the pandemic, I got very interested in DAOs. And in the beginning, I got exposure through The advocacy side, I was working with a local law firm in Chicago to advocate for Illinois to recognize DAOs. And that law firm said, hey, you should really get in touch with Alliance. They're working on a lot of the things that are interesting to you. And so he put me in touch kind of just on a friendly basis. And I got talking to the team there. And we realized that as they embarked on creating their DAO, I'd be a good integration and could help oversee the construction of their DAO.
1: So tell us a little bit about what Alliance is doing, because what they're doing is very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about about it?
0: Sure. So Alliance is effectively an ecosystem. You could think of the accelerator, which is what most people associate with Alliance as more or less the portals to the rest of the ecosystem. So excellent founders come in, they get great instruction and mentorship and networking through the accelerator and then they become part of a much broader network of successful founders, the 3 contributors. And that is more or less an alumni association that is designed to have long-term connection and long-term value to those alumni. And it's designed to engage people along their career as Wemp3 builders and to bring them back over the course of their successful careers.
1: So why d- did Alliance decide to choose a DAO versus any other type of structure?
0: It's a good question. And it's 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 the most important question that anyone who's thinking about building a DAO should ask. And there are a few forms yeah. that seem very logical for DAOs versus traditional kind of corporate forms. And one is an alumni network. I mean, if, you, if what you're really trying to do is bootstrap a network of people who are going to put in real effort A DAO is a great way to capture that effort and to prevent value leakage. There are a few other instances like unions, potentially infrastructure projects, which we could talk about later. But in this context, the Alumni Association, a way to really make sure that those people who go through the accelerator continue to contribute to the overall value of the community. That's what was envisioned. And that's where we saw the real value of a distributed community community versus having kind of a centralized or formalized alumni association.
1: So from like a hypothetical standpoint, I think it sounds really great, right? But then from like a tangible logistic standpoint, there's all these things that you end up running into, whether it's legal, just like it's so new, right? And so how does one even go about thinking about starting a DAO, what makes it successful, et cetera?
0: Sure. So the framework that we use with anyone who's coming through the accelerator to think about it, DAO construction is first. Think very long and hard about why DAO. So let's assume we got past that. Then the question is, DAO first or DAO later? And we've seen, you know, the broader market, a lot of projects that started as DAOs. In the beginning, DAOs started as a way of bootstrapping capital. And more or less, that has not been the most successful form of DAO. I'm not saying that there can't be very successful DAOs that start just, you know, as DAOs. But oftentimes what happens is there is a great product that is going to form the center of a community. And that product is generally brought forward by a group of founders designed. And oftentimes part of the product design is to distribute the product function through a community, be that a protocol, which is a great candidate for DAO governance or something else, in which case I think a thoughtful plan that's geared toward an eventual decentralization is how founders who are really going to build a DAO that's successful, think about it.
1: So you're the DAO architect of Alliance. What exactly does a DAO architect mean?
0: I think that effectively what a DAO architect does is build the roadmap for the creation of the DAO and then oversee the progress of the construction of each component of that roadmap. So what does a roadmap include? I think the most important thing is it includes a mission. So if you're in the second category of DAO that we talked about, the DAO later usually the mission is fairly crystallized, but condensing that into a form that is, that is able to be replicated throughout the DAO's effort is the most important thing you can do in the beginning. So having a clear understanding of what the community is and where it will go after it's kind of distributed is the first part. And then... As you're setting kind of the agenda for building, you have to think of what governance is like. So that's one of the hardest things to design. And over the course of time, we've decided that governance minimization is the best default. There can be exceptions, but thinking through the call it, core rules that can help the community from its inception function well and make good decisions for itself, that's a really hard thing to do. And that's a big part of DAO architecture. So. That's thinking through how proposals come to be in the beginning, what the initial state of the DAO is, and then scenario planning: what's it going to be like when control of a product is handed over to a community? So that takes a lot of thought. That takes thinking through the rules of making proposals, what proposals might look like. And then there's the integration with the on-chain infrastructure. So in order to architect a DAO, you really have to understand how the smart contract infrastructure will work how that will integrate with a governance system, how that will support a broader community. You have to think about attack surfaces. You have to think about the rudimentary, like what exactly does a tokenized voting system look like? Is it an ERC-20? Is it an ERC-721? Is it some combination of the two? What's going to serve this community well? And then you also have to think of how do you elevate the highest inputs for your community? So That's not something that you necessarily know at the beginning, but there may be a few points that you know will be valuable to this community. And so you think of reputation systems for reward systems that might elevate the highest producers in your community. In doing that, you have to think about potential oligopolies. You have to think about a lot of political science. It's a fun experiment, but but this is really what DAO architecture is. The last thing I'd say is After all of that, that intellectual experiment, you have to figure out how to bring it into the real world. And that includes, you know, a lot of discussions with attorneys. It includes a lot of thought about operations and the likes. And so that's probably the most exciting and the most strenuous part is bringing this into the real world.
1: So I'm in a couple of DAOs, right? And the trouble with being in DAOs, I feel like, is like participation and getting quorum and getting people to like it'd be incentivized to actually do something with the DAO. You end up with like a core group of people that are actually doing all the work. And then you end up with a bunch of different people that aren't right. And this is mainly just because the DAO is thrown together. There wasn't really much thought in terms of how it's structured, right? In terms of how you think about, there's a lot of different things that come into play here, whether it's like the legal structure stuff, but also the game theory type stuff in terms of the incentives and how people work together. How is all of that? Planned? Is it basically like experiments and experiments until you get something that works, or how does it all plan in terms of getting something like real and working?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of this is idea and then trying it out amongst the best minds you know, figuring out why you're wrong, and then going back the table. And there is a general way of thinking about this, which is like Dao's in general, what one might work, and then there's your specific community. So I think you identified the biggest problem: participation. And so one of the problems that leads to a lack of participation is that many DAOs kind of assemble around a principle or a value proposition that's not incredibly valuable to the community, meaning some people opt in, it's interesting, they figure out what a DAO is and then they lose interest. So I think one of the most important things is having a mission that's compelling enough to the community that the core of that community, which is hopefully quite distributed, is interested in participating on a regular basis. Now, some of this really does come down to the game theory you're talking about. Like, How do you um, align somebody's interest with the effort they put in? And some of that's just sticking through to ownership of value. It could be reputation, like what motivates the people who are in your society, right? It could be, in some DAOs, money. In some DAOs, it could be Status and or a combination of the two. So I'm a big believer in reputation systems, but reputation systems are really just models of a user. But when you think of it that way, it's liberating because you realize what you're doing is designing a game, like you said. And so you have to think of what your player and then what the players look like and how they function together. And so you find a lot of pitfalls. You play a lot of games. I have the benefit of having some great game theorists will robinson in particular is part of the early contributor set and we scenario play just about every idea we have and put holes in it and the best you can do is hand something to the community with a thesis and very importantly it has to be flexible you have the minimum viable game theory set let's call it the minimum viable game theoretical principles that your members can follow. And you give them the ability to amend it if it's porous, if it doesn't work. I think that's the best you can do.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about that process in which you propose something you poke holes in it? Can you give us an example of something like that? That's so interesting.
0: Sure. So let's think about it in terms of let's create a network of podcasters. Right. And we think, okay, so podcasters generally want a few things. They want visibility, because the more visibility they get, the broader the audience they get, and that accrues their benefit over time, be it with advertisements, be it with getting better people on the show. So let's say we have a DAO, and it's a bunch of different podcasters, and they want to figure out how to elevate their contributors in a way that is beneficial to the whole and sustainable. So we could come up with metrics for what that means. Maybe it's how many new users are brought to a broader community based on any given podcast. Okay, let's say that's what it is. Then we have a way of assigning value there. The pitfall is, how do we distribute value there? Let's say we're just using points, you know, or monopoly dollars. Okay, so maybe we decide we're gonna distribute points for different viewers on a quarterly basis. That's all well and good, but let's say that one podcaster has In general, a lot more, you know, viewership and brings a lot more people. But they decide to take for rock. Well, they're going to be kind of angered that they don't get any distribution on this quarter because they're going to feel like their anchor position has some merit. So then you have to think of what does the long term incentive structure look like relative to the short term, and if there is an anchor like we just talked about, how does everyone else feel about that? How do they feel like they're incrementally going to add value over time? And I don't have the answer for you, but I think I've walked you through, like the, the problem set. What is the metric of value? And here, here it's viewers. And then what is the relationship between the contributors, both in the short and the long term? That's a really good framework for thinking about
1: how to assign value in a DAO. So now that we have kind of like this idea, what are the steps that would need to be taken in order to actually make it real, right? There are DAO tools that we have to figure out how to incorporate. There's like legal structures. Like how is that process? Taking that idea into like reality, how
0: does that work? Sure. So I think that we need to articulate minimum viable DAO. And if you look at how I've thought about DAOs in the past, I talk about the initial state because I think that's the most important thing for a DAO. So if we're bringing it into existence, you could have a blank slate, which is just, hey, we think this community is great. Like, here are a few things to get you moving. Once go. You could have a forward, which is like writing a forward to a novel. It's like, here's how we think it's going to go here's the community and the rule set, go for it. Or if you don't have totally finished product, like here's the community, here are the rules. It's, you know, here are the people who are sitting on the you know, committees and the likes, let's go. I think the middle, the forward is generally the best. So we give people freely to what the community is going to look like. And we can assemble a minimum, you know, on-chain infrastructure. I mean, you could do that with a DAO launcher. Let's assume that this is a good candidate to go to super DAO with. Okay, let's say they take care of just the basic tokenization. You're ready to go there. I think you do have to think a lot about the legal. I'll plead out and say, couldn't give legal advice here, but a lot of this has to be designed in concert with excellent legal providers. Generally, somebody who's a legal architect, you can think about your product in a sophisticated way. That's a time intensive and costly process, but one that's well worth it. And then I think you have to think of how are you going to convince the initial community to rally around something? So oftentimes there will be some structure within an early DAO. And conveniently, you know, Vitalik just wrote about this in his paper where he talks about the you know, concave and convex decisions without going down the well. He articulates a system in which you could have a hierarchical structure where the general tokenized group votes on things that are better in aggregate decision. So often where the average of decisions is better than any single perspective. But then you can have pods or committees or working groups that go by different names that have specific executive functions. Generally, they're elected, so they have accountability to the token holders, and they make the concave decisions, the ones where the extremes are more important than the middle. So I advocate that as people think about building DAOs, without getting into the legal aspect of it, the appropriately assigning a uh, system for the concave and convex interplay is the best way to go about the initial state.
1: So you have a background in law and private equity. And so you've seen how like existing traditional corporate governance and traditional legal structures work. Right, and how does that inform you to really understand DAO formation?
0: Yeah, so I think the most important thing to think through is the fundamentals of human interest. So the first thing to look for is conflicts of interest. Like you want to design a system where somebody can't both, you know, oversee a treasury and then have an interest in allocating it themselves. Like that would not be a good thing. So. Having default rules that like if you are a grant writer and a DAO, you can't grant to yourself. I think these are really important things to think about from a corporate governance perspective. Having controls on the degree of human discretion and more importantly, having ways to detect abuses of that discretion. One way to do this is if you're thinking about funding workers, for instance, like you probably want to keep the funding cycle fairly short because if you detect somebody using funds illicitly or inappropriately, you've limited your risk profile versus allocating them, you know, millions of dollars and then finding out they're embezzling. So creating short-term feedback loops where human discretion is involved, I think is really important. And that that's informed by, you know, corporate governance, oversight, and the likes.
2: Yeah, I, I love the idea that you brought up earlier of minimal viable DAO. It makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like as an architect, it has to be very hands-on. You're laying out a lot of Kind of the skeletal like major guidelines and rules but a lot of it does seem to be very particular to each community each group of people can you talk about how you in perhaps in the past have worked with or how much time it takes for a project like dow to get off the ground
0: yeah i think that this depends on the scope of the community and their mission so if you're to do something like what nouns did which I think is very cool, you know, autonomously generating a new NFT every day and having common you know, control of a treasury and then being able to author, you know, the purpose of the use then treasury, like, then it's probably as much time as it takes for the devs to develop you know, the framework once that's, once, once that's been developed. So that would be a fairly quick to build down. I don't want to just, disp- I, I think what Now is doing is very interesting and it might have taken them a lot longer than I'm aware of. But, um, if you're creating a much, more structured, distributed community, um, those terms can sound like they conflict, but I don't think they do. If you take like an optimism, I think that takes the better part of a year. And then you'd have to ask the team there how long it took them to design. I mean, they, they were a product building the optimism network long before they you know had the airdrop and, and had the governance structure. So I think as you're getting more elaborate with what the community is going to do, Your time scale has to be quite a bit longer if you want to get it right.
1: You've written about the Optimism DAO, and do you mind kind of going through what they did?
0: Sure. So I think what Optimism is doing is very interesting. I should say that their vision for the DAO is to effectively have an initial effort. And then the tagline is that the Constitution is made to self destruct. So they're going to have learnings from the initial phase, and then they may redesign thereafter. But in the initial case, what's really going on is that optimism is using the Dow to deploy funds for the funding of public goods. And that's important in two instances. One is there's prospective public goods funding, and the other is there's retroactive public goods funding. Now, the people who are making the decisions as the deployment of funds for either One are not the same. In the first instance, The group that's making prospective bets effectively on what's going to be a good public good for the optimism network or broader, you know, Ethereum virtual machine, that's the token house. So effectively what happens there is that delegates receive delegation from token holders and they vote the weight of their delegated token holder share. And so that is, you know, just your classic. People could have much more voting power than others. There can be some concentration issues, but more or less, know over a smallish portion of funds the token house allocates to prospective projects. That also helps to distribute the optimism token broadly across many different projects that help build out the optimism environment. And then you've the other, which is retroactive public goods funding, which is you know a larger pool of capital. And that is a one person, one vote system. So what happens there is stewards are effectively elevated through the optimism community, people who have been Identified as as informed and generally useful to optimism. They're given an NFT and then one person, one vote, they're able to decide what has actually been a public good. It's very interesting. And the theory is that the value of the product should equate to profit on the product. So, what I love about optimism is they envision having the first public goods exit, somebody who otherwise would have built something from an altruistic motive being able to receive compensation for the broader event that they created and so that's what token house governs then they have the foundation sitting on top which is going to in the initial case oversee governance so effectively monitor what's going on make suggestions have relations with the delegates figure out what's working what's not think about like whether or not voting thresholds make sense and then they're also going to handle distribution of the token more broadly The interplay between the token house and foundation is important too. There will be some constitutional interplay between the two. And then the other thing I didn't mention, which is really important for for optimism, through this separation of powers, uh, the community governs, updates the protocol as well. So the hoped for result in this experiment is to have a separation of powers that allows the optimism network to be a great steward of funds to reinvest. In the optimism community, to create public goods and effectively accelerate the growth of the community, it's a
1: fascinating experiment. It's such a complex experiment as well. So it's it's really interesting to see how thought through everything is and designed. One of the things that you've also written about is community organization in DAOs. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Sure. So I think a lot about this, and I think of you know a few different frameworks. Like the first is. The flat DAO. I think of flat DAOs in two ways. One is just straight up DAOs are flat. This is part of the very early theory on DAOs. And then the other is pods breaking otherwise flat communities into smaller groups. I'll address each kind of in turn. So, what I've found in looking at so called flat DAOs is you get the problem that, that you kind of anticipated earlier. Even if there's no official distribution of power, a lot of DAOs exhibit the loudest voice is the most powerful. And if you look at the available metrics you know from the outside, things like discord participation, voting participation, you know, relative token concentration, you see a pretty big concentration of power among five to seven contributors. And then you have exponential decay from contributors like seven to 15, after which it's just kind of flatlines. So... I'm not saying that flat DAOs can't work, and I would say that some of these flat DAOs still have great results, but it's fairly discouraging for a newcomer to walk into a community that that is more or less dominated by a few. I reserve judgment on the pod system because I I think, for instance, what Metropolis is doing is quite interesting, breaking the aggregate into smaller working groups and having effectively either self-determined committees within small working groups or flat groups, that could be a more effective way of managing. You're breaking the community into a small enough group to keep accountability between those users or contributors. And so there's going to be less of an aggregate discouragement for new entrants, and there will be less alienation. So I think that's an interesting kind of strategy. I think it's best paired with hierarchical structure, which i will talk about in a second. But the other form of community is a reputation community. So if you look at DX DAO, they have, you know, reputation. You can elevate your voting and influence based on your, the quality of your contribution, based on a variety of factors that are articulated by the DAO. I think that's a great way to structure a DAO. I think that what you have to manage the game theory that we spoke about before. Like, if there isn't a way for reputation to decline then people could end up with a huge share of the reputation. So thinking about reputation slashing is really important, but it can also totally irritate some of your most valuable contributors. So it's it's a very delicate thing. The last, which we talked about with optimism, is your hierarchical DAO. That's basically a political theory, which is that the power resides with the tokenized community broadly, and then it is delegated in a sophisticated manner. It could be delegated specifically to pods. It could also be delegated to like specific houses. That's a frontier of DAO design that I think is really interesting.
1: You talk about reputation slashing and a lot of new concepts when it comes to DAO formation. Do you think it's better to self-build DAO tooling or engage third parties to provide tooling services? What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, so I think that is a key question. And it goes to what's important to the community. So there are trends where relying on an outside product makes total sense. If, for instance, you know, you're know you setting up an accounting system because you decided your DAO needs to report X, Y, or Z, it might not make sense if you don't have a community of accountants to develop your own tooling. And in fact, you might accelerate your community's progress by finding a third-party provider who's building a tool specifically for your purpose. I think when it comes to reputation systems, for instance, that's a very delicate question. There are some builders that are building very interesting third party reputation software, basically ways to track contributions. But I think that most communities need to think very specifically about what it is that's relevant to them and whether or not that can be tracked by the systems that are out there. So my typical criticism. Is that the V1 products and the reputation space focus on things like Discord participation, discourse, you know, dialogue, things that are kind of what I call naive factors in DAO participation, but they don't get to the richer information on specific contributors. So you know, somebody could game the naive factors; they could you know comment a ton on Discord. They could even come up with, you know, collusion to say, hey, I'm going to comment on this comment back to me. We'll both get more points. And I think that the specifically important things that could go on something like a leaderboard, those are community specific. I tend to think that those are good candidates for self build. I really just emphasize flexibility. So the thing I don't want to see in an early DAO is is you know, becoming dependent on a third party because once you become dependent, you know, you kind of determine a part of the DAO's future. And I think DAOs need a lot of flexibility to pivot as new information arises.
1: So not only are you helping Alliance with their own DAO formation, but you are really mentoring every single founder and startup that comes through Alliance to think through their own DAO formation as well. What are some of the things that come up a lot for these startups as they're thinking about forming their own DAOs?
0: Sure. So. One of the best parts is getting to work with the founders because they have such amazing ideas and they have very challenging questions. So a lot of what I've learned about DAOs is in a reaction to great founder questions. And one of the most important and one of the most frustrating things about building Web3 is Web3 founders don't have a great compass out of the box on how to think about getting counsel. So one of the things I've written at length about is just how do you think about assessing an attorney? Before I even get into like vetting the attorney, what I really emphasize with founders is come up with your crystallized product design. What is it that you want to do? Not the like, hey, I kind of want to do this, but like, give me your thesis in a way that if I were an attorney, I could sit down and think critically about what you said and how it relates to the law. That way you don't waste time. So a lot of what I do is, you know, put founders in touch with Good representation. I don't represent them. You know, we're very clear about not representing the founders, but but we have a great legal network, and we put them in touch with excellent attorneys. Let's put that aside because that's not as close to like dow specific questions. I think founders have a lot of questions around governance. Governance is not something that's just you know taught generally, and in fact, it's a very understudied category that's relevant to any kind of communal asset management. So. What I do with founders is I think a lot about their specific needs, whether or not they need to decentralize at all, whether a token even makes sense in their case. I'm I'm really a minimalist when it comes to that. But what is it that you're really trying to accomplish as your envisioned community? And what of the governance kind of designs we've spoken about might best serve that community? That's like the number one thing I see. And that can be from protocol designers
2: to DAO first designers to tool designers. Quick question, Dane. So sure. in terms of the companies that I'm sure Alliance is working with, probably a lot of them are Web3 native. What about companies that are transitioning from Web2 to Web3 in terms of you know, how you think about, for example, creating a DAO, a minimum viable DAO, and perhaps slowly helping them to realize and to implement a lot of things, perhaps not across the entire organization at first, But, you know, testing different theses and then, you know, slowly building that out for the entire organization. Like, how do you think about being, I guess, completely DAO focused versus starting with maybe one piece of the organization or one idea and then building that out slowly?
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And we definitely do see even the founders from Web2 who think, gosh, you know. Web three could be a the new frontier for us. Like this happens with gaming all the time. People have excellent suites of games, and then they want to think, how do I take this to the next level? Something I always emphasize is you have to think of what the scope of governance is. So my favorite example is right now we could start red light DAO, and all red light DAO does is you know we decide is the red light on or is the red light off. It's a really boring DAO, but. It shows you that like within an entire municipality, a DAO could govern just a red light. DAO could also govern all of the lights in a city. And you can go from there and from there. So I always say start with the lowest scope of governance. Like, what is it about your ecosystem that would be best governed by your your users, your players? Like what could they modify? You could see this if you're like an avid Fortnite player, like they've started to incorporate, you know, voting in Fortnite, right? You can vote whether The next season's going to include a housing structure or like a new kind of fortification in a spot. You can apply that in a tokenized environment too, and I expect Epic Games is kind of on the way there. But these are small pieces of the game, and then you can build it out much bigger, like what are the characters going to be? What can they use? Those are bigger decisions. So I would say scope it very narrowly, see if that's going to work, and then build it out.
1: How are DAOs seen today in like kind of the traditional landscape and what did DAOs need to do to gain credibility and play a real role in the global economy?
0: Yeah, so I think that DAOs are going to be important, but I'm a self-described DAO minimalist. I think that 2 to 5% of what are otherwise corporate structures could be re-envisioned as DAOs and more successful. And so I think the first thing we need to do is is be honest in The rhetoric about what DAOs can be and say, hey, this is a really interesting and valuable application, but it is not the only interesting and valuable application. There's still a sphere for the corporate world. There's integration between the two, I really do think. But let's start with that. Let's say we've identified the appropriate target of where DAOs do win. And then I think that we need to more or less professionalize (laughs) aspects of DAOs. I think we need to come to more valuable governance infrastructure. There are some great companies that are working on tooling there. I think we also need to really focus on security. I don't think DAOs are ready right now to hold billion-dollar treasuries. We see a lot of footfalls with DAOs right at their launch, whatever it might be. I think we need to think through a lot of ways to minimize the attack surface on DAOs if they're going to hold significant assets. And we're able to do that. I think we can go a lot further and we'll see the value of DAOs.
1: You said that you met Alliance by working with the state of Illinois in terms of DAO legislation, right? And I know Wyoming also has DAO legislation as well. Can you just kind of go over what that means and how does a state incorporate DAOs? Sure.
0: So, so, yeah, I started with a law firm that you know had the idea that let's let's you know, advocate for a DAO statute in, in reference to the Wyoming statute. That's more or less been a stalled out project. But I actually did testify in Wyoming about amendments to their bill about how, you know, the default rules of recognizing membership in a DAO LLC, I think that the idea of having some corporate form that allows DAOs to do business in a way that's legible or cognizable the state is generally a good thing. I still think we're a ways from getting to high impact use of those structures, a lot not because of the state's but because the federal infrastructure is still quite confused. And so if you have a state that accepts a Dow LLC, but you don't have integration into the federal side, then you're kind of stalled out. And we've seen some difficulties in Wyoming where people create the Dow LLC and then they go to the federal government and try to have more or less legibility and it's stalled out. So I think it's great that states are advocating. I think that it's important that they do because it shows credibility to federal governments. And I should say beyond the US, every sovereign state matters here and could claim jurisdiction, whether or not we think it's rightful. And so I think that it's a great step that states are being proactive. You know, I could point to Wyoming, Colorado, Vermont. They've they've done an excellent job of taking the first step, but it's part of a Broader advocacy effort that needs to happen in order to make DAOs legible. I will say there is a movement within the DAO community to say that DAOs shouldn't be legible. I, I tend to be more on the side of like, let's figure out how to do this so that you know, innovators can just focus on innovating. So finding a way for DAOs to work adjacent to the state is important.
1: What is the difference between just an LLC versus a legible DAO? What does Wyoming have, for example, that allows you to create a DAO? Like, what is the difference?
0: Sure. So, more or less, in the eyes of the law broadly, it, it should function very similarly, but what a DAO LLC allows you to do is, is effectively create an incorporation document that's in reference to a smart contract that then allows you to update membership as the DAO updates its membership that allows you to account for things like who should be, if tax flows to the token holders, ultimately, like you know, who are the members who, who should tax flow to? And that is relevant to the state level as well as at a federal level. So it is like an LLC that is just shaped for what a DAO is.
1: Got it. So going back to the founders of Alliance and what you're seeing in terms of their DAO formation, what are some of the hardest parts of DAO formation that you've been seeing?
0: I think the hardest part is is modeling the future. You can do everything that you think is right in service of the community, but You can only predict within the confines of your own mind. So getting to know your community is essential. And it's not just getting to know them on a personal basis. It's getting to know in aggregate what your community values, what it values enough to decide to contribute on a regular basis, and then projecting forward how it might continue to evolve based on the initial rules that you give it. I think that's the hardest thing. You need to see a range of futures for your community if you're setting a dow in motion. And you're going to be wrong in most of the cases, but you want to be within the spectrum of prediction. You don't exactly know if it's going to hit in the left or right boundary, but you anticipate that it will be between those goalposts. That's the hard part is figuring out where those are.
1: One of the questions that I have is like, as you're decentralizing and you're giving power away and something doesn't really align with the direction that you were thinking about going, how do you pull back power or how do you adjust the direction so that it kind of aligns with the direction that you want to go in?
0: So the ideal is that you're not in a position of having to pull back power. So the way I envision a DAO is you continue to allow the DAO to kind of expand its power and its scope. But you never want to start by giving a DAO a right that needs to be taken away because first, if you're truly DAO, the DAO is going to have to decide to take its own right away. And that's pretty tough to do. So building in controls that allow the DAO to monitor what data exists, what the will of the DAO is, I think is important, particularly in the initial instance, you know, to the extent that progressive decentralization is right and, you know, as advised by, by attorneys, et cetera, like that's probably a better way to assess on an incremental basis how the data is going to progress versus just going full, all right, token holders, just just vote on everything. Giving some structure I think is important, but I like to think of baby steps in terms of expanding the power is better than trying to subtract power.
2: So. Going back to creating DAOs for a lot of the, let's say, the portfolio companies, and then not for a lack of, I guess, thorough thought, but how often do you see companies say in certain verticals, or you just don't think fundamentally it makes sense for them to actually implement a DAO?
0: That's a good question. We've definitely seen circumstances in which we've said, hey, your your play really is to be a tooling provider. You don't need to additionally be a DAO and think about swapping tokens or something like that. Like you're creating an awesome application that DAOs can use. And you're actually best as a traditional company. I can't say the percentage. You know, I'd say overall, like the, the number of projects that come in articulating themselves as a DAO is it's not the lion's share. So for a lot of founders... It's an education on governance and what might occur if they think about you know, becoming a DAO later on. But there are times where I'm very direct and I say, you don't need to think about becoming a DAO yourself. Like, you, know, you don't you don't need to think about tokenization, just you know, build a great tool. Um, but it's hard to quantify the percentage.
2: Got it. And do you think it ever makes sense for, let's say a more traditional organization um, to have the DAO only be a subset? you know, making a DAO out of only a particular team or a particular project, but not having the longer-term goal of basically creating a DAO for the entire community or organization itself.
0: Yeah, so this is a topic I'm really getting into, which is the integration of the corporate form and decentralized decision-making. Decentralization within a corporate form is maybe not as grand of a term, but I think that, for instance, unions could be an excellent Application of DAOs. This isn't necessarily a money making proposition so much as it is an effective way of organizing. One of the biggest ills for unions is a lack of faith in voting. If you look at prosecutions with union leaders, a lot of it relates to honoring the results of a vote. So if you're able to instill trustless voting, that could be a great way to instill more confidence. Take it out of the unionization. Let's just say an employee interest group or governance of an employee stock plan, or governance of a 401k. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which having distributed, tokenized voting is a good way to come to an average of the decisions and then act in the best interests of a community.
1: Would you say that the reason why there is an unlock in terms of DAOs is the smart contract? Is that the reason why we can start organizing in governing in this way is through code. Is that why DAOs exist? Can you kind of explain how the origin of DAO now exists versus before? Sure. So I think
0: that you could find a handful of instances of organizational forms that are effectively DAOs that didn't have tokenization. It was pointed out to me in a DAO workshop recently that there's a great book about the founding of Visa and how that's more or less a DAO of financial actors. I have to dig into that more, but I think that's a really interesting thought. I think that one of the most important things about DAOs, though, is is a mutable record. So let's put aside protocols where I think the vote plus autonomous execution is very much like a core trait of that protocol. Let's just talk about a communal form that is described as a DAO. It could be a decentralized organization, a DAO that the spectrum there is not very clear at the moment. The fact that voting occurs and is immutably recorded is a huge accountability push. So if there is a way to then hold people to account if they do not proceed in the direction of a vote, that is a very strong way of making sure that there is more aligned accountability. And so I do think that tokenized voting is a strong form of organizational control. And I think it allows people to function together with more trust.
1: You said that you've never been more optimistic about the future of DAOs coming back from the Stanford DAO workshop. Can you describe what the Stanford DAO workshop is and what happened there?
0: Yeah. So the Stanford Down workshop was put together by DAO Research Collective, Commonwealth, SCRF, and obviously hosted at Stanford. It was an excellent kind of gathering of people who were thinking very critically about DAOs. There were Stanford professors, there were law professors, you know, from Boston University. There were just a lot of excellent minds. And the workshop was effectively classified in six different intellectual categories. So you know, I'm not going to remember all of them, but organizational design being one, law being another, engineering being another, social science being another. I was just really impressed with the seriousness of the people who showed up. So there is a frame of thinking about DAOs, which is that it's more or less people who are DGENs or people who are kind of, their relationship with the state is a questionable. And this is such a rebuttal of that point of view. These are people who have spent careers thinking about serious problems. They're coming together to say, hey, there's a technology here that's new. We don't entirely know where it's going, but we see a lot of promise in it. And we're going to dedicate time to coming up with research proposals for serious academics to pursue in order to get data and feedback on where this Dow movement is headed. And the quality of thought I saw there It really impressed me. And so my walkaway was, this is a category of organizational study that's here to stay. I can't tell you how broad the scope is. Again, I'm a minimalist. Two to 5% of organizations is my prediction. But gosh, the impact of unlocking this way of organizing, I think it's very strong.
1: What do you personally see as the frontier of DAO formation or DAOs more generally?
0: Yeah, I think that exploring this nexus between forms of decision-making the concave-convex paradigm, which Vitalik recently described in a very thoughtful piece. I think that's going to be a big part of it, how different forms of organization fit together. I think that tooling is a really important frontier. So there's been a debate about whether there are too many tooling providers or not enough. I say there aren't enough high-impact tooling providers. So there's still a market there. And I welcome any founder building a tool to apply to Alliance because we really do need the tools that take us to the next generation. I think that more sophisticated reputation systems that allow us to reference real world activities and do so in a trusted way, basically using oracles about the real world to inject information into a DAO's ledger. I think that's a future that allows us to have more sophisticated metrics for judging people's participation. And then I think the discovery of new forms of organizing. So I mentioned infrastructure projects. I think there is a world in which communities decide they're going to build a road and the people who live adjacent to it put some of the cost, but then they're able to assess tolls for anyone who's going through and vote on certain rules of that road. And, you know, I could see the same with water rights. Anything that involves collective action that is oftentimes performed by a municipality but could be performed by a specific group of people that are motivated and more or less want to self-govern, I think DAOs would enable that to a degree.
1: You see a lot of founders, and you mentioned DAO tooling, right? And so I was wondering, in your opinion, based on what you've seen, what is lacking in the DAO tooling space right now?
2: I'm
0: excited about the efforts of a few of our founders in the frontier of knowledge management. So one of the limitations of DAOs right now is that they're very reliant on things like Google Documents or Notion. I'd call out Charmverse as an excellent example of a project to create a decentralized, token-gated knowledge management tool. I think that is an excellent effort. I see more efforts in the source truth space to be really important. And so I'm very excited about what will happen with knowledge management. I think that governance, advisory work, Governance implementations really important. So I was very excited to see teams working on solutions for delegation, metrics on how delegates perform, means of connecting delegates to the interface for voting in a more sophisticated and efficient way. I think that there's definitely room for tools on the accounting side. I mean, if regulation goes the direction of reporting... I think some DAOs will be able to successfully register. And I think the, what will enable them to do that will be tooling that helps them effectively create audited financials in an autonomous way. That's going to be a hard bill. But once it's there, I think it could be very useful. So if that's the direction of the world which, you know I have several counter-arguments. I think that type of tooling could be tremendously important.
1: You've previously mentioned DAO and optimism. What are some of the DAOs, in terms of DAO formation that you respect or you see are making interesting innovations on?
0: I think that there's going to be a proliferation of nouns forks. Basically, people who decide that they want to add an autonomously generated community that builds over time and manages a treasury, but it's just not nouns. Like, I have a ton of respect for nouns. One of the criticisms is that each noun costs so much money. So I think that some people will fork it. They maybe add different graphics, whatever it might be, and they will then have a new community that has that virtue of perpetually, autonomously generating. I think that something interesting that's developing right now is with Syndicate. So Syndicate has created collectives that they are effectively NFT-gated I'm not going to point to any specific collective within their environment or that has been created with syndicates input. But I think that the generalizable architecture based on either leveraging an ERC-721 or an ERC-721 adjacent to an ERC-20, that's a really interesting framework. And I think we'll see more builds that are along those lines. And then I think that there is... A lineage of hierarchical downs that are really interesting to study. I mean, you could look at Urine Finance, which is, is a very interesting kind of method of creating distributed teams that is geared at actually creating autonomy and autonomous execution.
1: Is there anything else that we haven't covered yet that we should talk about?
0: Yeah, I think that right now, at the time of you know, this podcast, I wanna emphasize the importance of thinking critically about exactly what people are building and the virtues and making that known. So there's really a silo within Web3 of people who know the value and see it every day and live it. And I really think that people need to start to voice that the outside world and advocate for the value and the innovation here because if so few people are there building The novel products that could really be important for the future. And right now there's a disconnect with the general public. And I am very, I'm very hopeful that the effort of advocacy on behalf of true entrepreneurs will help us move policy in a direction that is fair, fosters innovation, and does protect the general public and and actually makes the general public's life better. That's really what this is about. And so I see DAOs as a way to study this innovation and to build this innovation. I would like anyone who's involved with it to think a lot about how they can advocate for better results for Web3
1: innovation. Can you walk us through how advocacy works? As someone that doesn't really know the legal system, could you advocate like how are policy changes made and how are those inputs that come in to actually make those policy changes? How does that work?
0: Yeah, it's, that's a fantastic question. I'm going to try to trace it directionally between the U.S. branches of government, but then I'll talk about broadly how, how it will work, I think. So right now there's dispute about you know, what the law is, or there's confusion about what the law is. And, and that's because the U.S. Congress has considered the question of blockchain technology in a comprehensive fashion. And what I mean by consider, it means they haven't passed legislation that's a comprehensive system for assessing Blockchain technology. So, what we're left with is administrative and agencies in the executive branch trying to interpret old law. Right now, the SEC is interpreting the 1934 Act that, that relates to securities at a time when something like blockchain was not conceivable. And there's really intellectual gridlock over what that means. How do we interpret the past relative to the future? And so, where we're left is going to courts. And that's a really long slog. Anything we that gets resolved in the courts gets resolved over a very long period. It's an inefficient case-by-case way of resolving things. And so I think the advocacy effort really has to be directed toward informing policymakers who ultimately create the statutes and then helping them understand why this is very useful. You could say that to a court, but the court's impartial. They're only supposed to act on the legislation that's passed. And so broadly now, thinking internationally. We need coordination between policymakers who bring legislation to the table that understands the valuable impact of blockchain technology and then helps elevate it and protect it from the restrictive measures that certain cloud executive actors might want to want to enforce or put in place, but also be very clear to the innovation community. Here here are the protections you need to put in place. Here's how you do it if we understand. Your limitations, then we will give you a way to do it based on your limitations are.
1: Let's say if I was somebody that wanted to advocate for DAOs, what is that process like in terms of finding the right people, the policymakers? How does that work?
0: Yeah, so I think the best way to do it is to get involved with pre-existing communities. So one way to do it is to go and look at what Gitcoin has put out for grant rounds. At the end of GR fifteen, it does, there is an advocacy component. Within the advocacy component, there are excellent options to fund, but also to get involved with. Apart from that, I think that getting active in community newspapers, like writing editorials about positive experiences with DAOs and what they can do would be very useful. Starting to legitimize the term, because right now, if I say I work on DAOs to most people, I have to then back up and say well that's a decentralized autonomous organization but then i have to get into what the decentralization is autonomy and then by the way it's blockchain and LFO. Like, oh, so you mean bitcoin i mean we need to consolidate these things and not have to unpack it in a way that you know is more or less painful when you're talking to the general population because i think if we do that we're also going to move toward creating products that are actually broadly applicable we're starting to see some of that with you know Starbucks adopting a Polygon reward system. But we need to make sure that we're speaking the same language if we want to have policy that fosters the growth of the industry. I think that we're at the inception, effectively, of Dow history. And I think we'll look back on this period and say, hey, look, there were a lot of things we didn't know. And what I want to make sure is that we catalog those things we didn't know and the mistakes made along the way as a community and make sure that mistakes are siloed. So my biggest push when I study DAOs is to figure out what happened broadly, what failed, and how will we make it better? I was really encouraged. I spoke to somebody today who's working on augmenting one of the broader DAO ecosystems. And she's working on a history of DAOs. I think that's an excellent thing to do because Then we have a body of knowledge that we know categorizes what works and what doesn't, and we can go forward from there. So I think that having a DAO history and a collection of examples of what works and what doesn't is a really important thing for building better DAOs.
1: If I was a founder that was interested in DAO formation and I wanted to go through Alliance, like how does that work?
0: Sure. So we make it as simple as possible. Alliance.xyz, you click on apply. And then you walk through the application, you know, we give every founder the opportunity to both show what they're great at, their value proposition, but we also invite founders at all stages to apply. And then if you're interested in DAOs and, and you know, you've listened to this podcast, I'd, I'd reference that, you know, you heard of the Wild Podcast and you know, heard Dane Lund talking about DAOs and you know, then we, we register, you know, the data points that create DAO interests, but Communicating your your strong interest in creating effective DAO governance, DAO tooling. These are things we look for and, and we invite.
1: Thank you so much, Dane. How do people find you?
0: Sure. So I typically communicate on Twitter, uh, Mond underscore Dane. And you, know, you can always look me up on LinkedIn as well. I'm responsive across platforms. And if you want to talk more broadly, I'm happy to talk to people who
1: are building interesting things. Thank you, Dane. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you Paul. Thanks, Dane. Bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, WLD.SHOW. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you.